Here is your Radio Theater Channel weekly podcast for download. The RTC still has the very best old-time radio on the live streaming. And if it's music you love, tune in to the RTC Music Channel, where this link and many others are on our website at oldtimeradiolisten.com. Now, here's Jim. Hello, and welcome to the behind-the-scenes edition of the RTC Weekly Download. I'm your host, Jim Dolan. Well, what are we doing behind the scenes? We'll visit with the people of Behind the Mic. November 17, 1940 featured a show about Dinah Shore and the truck driver. Let's give it a listen. Radio's own show, Behind the Mic. Radio, with a switch of a dial, radio brings you tragedy, comedy, entertainment, information, education, a whole world at your command. But there are stories behind radio, stories behind your favorite program and favorite personalities and radio people you never hear of. Stories as amusing, dramatic, and as interesting as any make-believe stories you hear on the air. And that's what we give you. The human interest, the glamour, the tragedy, the comedy, and information that are behind the mic. And now, presenting a man whose name, since the beginning of broadcasting, has been a byword in radio, Graham McNamee. Thank you, Gil Martin, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen of the radio audience. We've said that there's plenty of human interest behind the mic, and if you still have to be convinced, just listen to this story told by the singing star of the Eddie Cantor program and one of radio's favorite songsters, Dinah Shore. Dinah, will you tell our behind-the-mic audience that story about the truck driver who was such a fan of yours? Well, Graham, he was a fan of mine who had often written requests for songs. I got the details of this story through a letter which he wrote me. Here's the story the letter told. Dear Miss Shaw, I want to tell you about something that happened to me. As I've written to you before, I'm an independent trucker. I own just one truck. A few days ago, I was bringing up a truckload of perishable goods from Florida to New York. I had a time limit in which to deliver this stuff or lose a contract that I needed badly. Two days from New York, my helper came down with some awful stomach cramps, and I had to leave him in a hospital. I took the wheel myself. I'd been driving for about 40 hours without getting any sleep because, as I told you... I had to get my truckload to New York in that time limit. Keeping that contract meant a great deal to me because my business was in pretty bad shape. Gee, I'm tired. Boy, what I wouldn't give for a little snooze right now. Hey, you big lug, why don't you look where you're going? I could pull up beside the road here and grab a little shut-eye for just a few minutes. Nope. Can't do that. If I ever start sleeping, I won't wake up till tomorrow. (gasps) Gee, I'm tired. I gotta do something to keep awake. I'll try tuning on the radio. Now we bring you the voice of Dinah Shore, one of radio's favorite Dinah singing Dinah Shore, stars. 
Last time I wrote her, she promised to sing I Dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair for me tonight. I wonder if she will. Dino opens her program by singing I Dream of Jeannie with the light brown hair. Say, she is going to sing it. Good girl, Dinah. Boy, I got to stay awake to hear this. see. Four more hours and I'll be in. Thanks, Dinah. I feel like I just got up. I won't have no trouble from now on. And did he reach New York okay and on time, Dinah? Well, Graham, he wrote me the letter. That ought to prove it. Well, thank you, Dinah Shaw, for a great story and, of course, always for your fine singing. Sound effect of the week. Each week behind the mic presents some unusual sound effect, which was used on a program of the past week and tells exactly how it was done. On the Bishop and the Gargoyle program this past week, this sound effect was used to denote a character being placed under a guillotine and having his head bobbed. I think it was the hero's hobby. The 
This jovial sound effect was accomplished by the sound man on the Bishop and Gargoyle show running a piece of metal up and down the side of a door to produce the sound of a guillotine knife falling. And then to complete the picture, taking a padded mallet and hitting the side of a wicker basket. There she goes. Ladies and gentlemen, this afternoon we're going to let you in on something that is really unusual and genuinely behind the mic. A young man, a member of the NBC guide staff, wants to try out for an NBC announcer's job and he's going to do it on this program. We have the chief of the NBC announcer's department here, Pat Kelly, to give him the announcer's test. Pat Kelly. Hello, Pat. Pat, before we proceed with the audition, please tell our listeners what experience a man must have in order to become an NBC announcer. Well, Graham, to get on a New York station, he has to have at least two years professional announcing experience. To get a job in one of our out-of-town stations, he has to have at least six months announcing experience and, of course, the qualifications we think necessary to make a good radio announcer. When you test your announcers before giving them jobs, Pat, what do you look for? Graham, the boys are judged on personality, voice, showmanship, their ability to project personality through the loudspeaker, and the ability to think fast and to describe events as they occur. They should also be able to read with style and without conveying the impression that they're reading in an artificial way. The tests that we will give our would-be announcer this afternoon are designed to cover these qualifications. We have our candidate here at the microphone, the NBC guide whose regular job is showing visitors through a studio and who is now going to try for an announcer's job on one of our out-of-town stations. He's ready to proceed with the audition, and this is an actual test. Are you ready to listen to him, Pat? Yes, Graham. But before I go into the control room to listen to him, let me say, ladies and gentlemen, that as his first test, our candidate will tell about himself and his background to enable us to hear his voice and to get an idea of his ability to sell himself. Because we feel that a man who cannot sell himself could not sell a commercial product or the program he's announcing. Now, I'll go into the control room, Graham, and will you describe the audition for our listening audience? All right, Pat. Now, Bill Huck, Mr. Kelly is ready to listen to you. It's going to be tough, but the best of luck. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm speaking to you for the purpose of trying to become associated with your announcing staff. Before proceeding with the audition... I should like to tell you of my qualifications and experience as an announcer. I attended Duke University, where I was a member of Duke Players, the dramatic organization on the campus, and of Theta Alpha Phi, National Honorary Dramatic Fraternity. I graduated from Duke with a Bachelor of Arts degree in economics. Having had some experience on a smaller station, I felt further and more valuable experience could be gained by coming to New York and the center of the radio industry, the National Broadcasting Company. The announcing class here at NBC has been of great value to me because I've learned how to read on the air, how to pronounce difficult foreign words, and in general the requirements of a good radio announcer. But now after this resume of my qualifications, we'll go on with the audition. Ladies and gentlemen, the next test is designed to show the candidate's adaptability to different types of sustaining and commercial continuity and news copy. First... He will read a commercial of the punch type. If hot weather or household cleaning wears you out, 
I'll tell you how thousands of other women keep fresh and happy. For your fault may lie with what you use to clean. You may be working too hard with an ordinary, lazy, inactive cleanser. So instead of cleaning this hard way, I urge you to switch to the amazing, quick-acting cleaner two million women now use. And now the next commercial is to be read in a conversational style. My buddy, my buddy. Nobody quite so true. This program is in honor of the most loyal buddy you will ever have. Your dog. Presenting Dog Heroes. Thrilling stories about heroic American dogs. Sponsored by the makers of the wonderful health-aiding food for dogs. For our next test, Bill Huck is going to read a news bulletin to see how well he can handle this type of copy. Here's your bulletin, Bill. Here's the latest news from the United Press. Athens. The Greek war ministry claims the Greek advance continues on all fronts. Vast stores of war, war materials are reported captured from the retreating Italian forces. And Athens claims Greek cavalry and British planes are spreading panic among the fleeing columns. London. German long-range guns shelled the Dover area for more than an hour this afternoon. No damage or casualties are reported. This news is from the United Press. Further details will be found in your newspapers. And now for the final test, Bill Huck is to introduce a musical program and prove his ability to ad-lib, an ability every announcer must have by describing the studio from which the broadcast is taking place. Ladies and gentlemen, we continue now with our musical program, which is coming to you today from the Ritz Theater in New York. And before introducing the first number, I should like to tell you something of our surroundings here. This theater is located on 48th Street, just west of Broadway and New York's famous Times Square. This is not one of New York's largest theaters, being conventional one, though, having the usual balcony, boxes on either side, and the orchestra, which today is mostly full and provides accommodation for approximately 750 people. But now, to get back to our program, which features another one of NBC's famous musical aggregations, Ernie Watson and his orchestra. NBC listeners have frequently heard the works of such celebrated composers as Bach, Gounod, Moscagni, Mussorgsky, and many other masters of classic music. However, today, Ernie Watson brings you Love Is. Well, that finishes the audition, and here comes Pat Kelly to give you his criticism, Bill. Well, I suppose you'd like to know about the audition, Bill. I certainly would, Mr. Kelly. Okay, then. I'll give you my frank opinion, if you don't mind. Not a bit. I made a few notes while I was listening to you out in the booth. I find that your voice is satisfactory. Though, of course, a little voice training wouldn't do you any harm. It would develop a richer quality, particularly in your, in your chest tones. However, the voice is not the most important thing. It's no more important than having a violin. You can give a man a violin, he's still not a violinist. Give a man a voice, he's still not an announcer. But I think you have the vocal qualifications for announcing. Your enunciation and pronunciation, your articulation are all good. Though you do have a tendency to slur final consonants. For example, watch words like speaking. There is a G on the end. The salesmanship, commercial punch. You have uh, punch all right, but I think with a little practice and experience, you will be able to make it a little more convincing than it was. Your conversational copy, reading of commercial conversational copy, I mean. Uh, you lack the ability to get sentiment into that little my buddy, my buddy. However, I'd rather you avoid sentiment than to try too hard and get sentimentality. Further practice, training will help that. In ad lib, you have the ability to put words together and 
to make a fairly conclusive picture. In other words, you have what an announcer must have, the ability to keep the show going. And I think you'll make good. And I hope in the very near future, we'll find a position for you as, an, as a really an NBC announcer here in New York someday. Thank you very much, Mr. Kelly. <laughs> Thank you both, Pat Kelly and Bill Huck, for giving us a real behind-the-mic scene. And boy, I'm mighty glad such tests were not in vogue when I broke into radio. <laughs> Mike salutes a program you love. We in radio believe that radio has a tradition of which it can well be proud, a tradition of good programs that linger fondly in our memory. And so each week, we bring you a star or a part of a program you used to hear, a program you love. This afternoon, Behind the Mic salutes one of radio's most famous orchestras, Harry Horlick and his A&P Gypsies, which was on the air for 10 years from November 1926 to September 7, 1936. We will recreate part of the A&P Gypsies program with leader Harry Horlick himself, leading the orchestra in arrangements that made his music famous. Harry Horlick and the A&P Gypsies. You are listening to the familiar two guitars, the title of the composition with which the A&P Gypsies greet you each Monday evening. The Gypsies are here, ready and waiting to begin their hour of entertainment. Horlick and the A&P Gypsies now play a composition of Harry Horlick's, Sen Sigan, Harry Horlick.
afternoon. They would be pleased to have some expression from you as to how you like their program. Harry Horlick and the AMP Gypsies now bid you good night. Takes me back a lot of years, Harry. And thank you, Harry Horlick, for recreating a part of your A&P Gypsies program. Just to hear the selection, two guitars played by you gave me a thrill, and I'm sure it affected our listeners to whom you have given so much pleasure the same way. Letters from listeners. Each week, we invite the listeners to behind the mic to write us questions about radio, and the three or four we consider to be of most general interest, we have answered on the air by the radio editor of some outstanding magazine or newspaper. This afternoon's questions will be answered by Mr. Mel Spiegel, radio editor of the New York Morning Telegraph. <laughs> Mr. Ralph Vogel of the Bronx, New York, asks this question. I listen a great deal to European broadcasts, and I would like to know if you can tell me when was the first transatlantic broadcast to regular radio listeners, and from where did it originate? Well, Graham, the first transatlantic broadcast originated from Coventry, England. It was picked up at Ulton, Maine, and transmitted by wire to WJZ in New York, and from where it was broadcast. This first transatlantic broadcast was in 1924. L.A. Carroll of Beverly Hills, California, writes in to ask this question about firsts. I had an argument with a friend as to what was the first coast-to-coast broadcast and when was the event broadcast. Will you please let me know? The first coast-to-coast hookup was on January the 1st, 1927, and consisted of a broadcast of the Rose Festival Parade and the Rose Bowl football game from California. Yeah, and I had the pleasure of being at the mic all that day, Mel. One of my real radio thrills. (laughs) Miss Dorothea McCann of Darlington, Maryland, asked this. How is it that a star can appear on his own show, as Jack Benny did recently, and then right after that appear as he did on the Screen Guild show, which is on a different network? Well, the reason Jack Benny was able to appear on these two programs, which followed each other on different networks, is that the NBC and the CBS studios in Hollywood, California, from where both shows originated, are right next to each other. As you remember, Jack did not appear in the first few minutes of the second show, which gave him time to travel from one building to another. Thank you, Mel Spiegel, for answering those questions. Ladies and gentlemen, the scene of our true behind-the-mic story today is in a dressing room of an NBC studio on Thursday evening in June of 1934. It's an hour before the opening broadcast of the famous Maxwell House showboat. The two black-faced comedians of the show, Molasses in January, whom you all remember, and whose real names are Pat Paget and Pick Malone, are sitting in their dressing room near the studio. They are in the middle of giving their script a final reading. Well, 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 doggone my time, Molasses, old fraternity sister. How is your little dog getting along? Uh, January, you, you mean my dog, Corset? Boy, why you call that dog Corset? Because I keep him tied up all day and lets him out at night. Oh, <laughs> Pick. Pick that gun and number. It sure will, boy. Well, come on now. Let's get along with this. Okay. Next line's yours. All right. Now, here I go. Okay. Uh, tell me this, yeah. 
How you getting along with the your E flat fiddle footed gals, Papa Molasses? Well, they they don't let me in the house no more. Cause last time I was there, I got in a fight with a Papa and stepped on his pipe. Well, what's the matter with the man? I don't see why he should be so mad with you. There ain't nothing so terrible about stepping on the old man's pipe. Yeah, but this was his windpipe. <laughs> yeah, now, now, yeah, that's all right, boy. That is funny. You know, this looks like a good script tonight. Yeah, I think that windpipe gag is a great kicker. It's a killer. Let's go out and get a cup of coffee. Yeah, well, all right. Now, wait till I wash up a little bit, will Okay. Oh, say, uh, by the way, uh, how's your wife getting along, Pat? Oh, not so good, Pat. Ever since she had that operation of hers, she hadn't come along the way I hoped she would. Oh, well, boy, now, listen, don't worry about that. That Arizona air is great. It's going to fix her up all right. Well, I sure hope it does. I got a letter from the doctor a few days ago and really got me worried. Oh, well, now, wait a minute. There's no use in worrying about it, Pat, old boy. Listen, you know doggone well that Diane's going to be all right. I sure I- hope so. I'll bet you'll be having her back with you before very long. Now, you wait and see. Now, wait till I get this soap out of my eyes here and we'll go grab a cup of wrench down. Okay. Uh, come in. Telegram for you, Mr. Padgett. Telegram? Well, thanks, sir. Yeah, boy. Oh. Oh, pick. What? What's the matter? What is it, Pat? Diane. What? She... She passed away in her sleep a little while ago. Oh, gee. Gee, I'm sorry, Pat. I can't... I can't believe it. Just don't seem possible, son. I know. Oh, pick. I'm gonna miss her. Yeah, I know. That's all right. I know you will, sure. But, uh, I'll be right back in a minute, Pat, old boy. Huh? Where are you going? Well, I'm going out and find out about the trains. You want to catch the first train out there that gets out there, don't you? Oh. I'll be right back. Now, wait a minute. I'm going to tell Bill Betcher that we won't be on the program tonight. Yeah, yeah, go on. Oh, wait a second, Pat. Yeah, wait, what wait. is it? Pick, come here. What? Don't do that, son. We got eight minutes of material in this show. I know. Well, they won't be able to fill that in without messing up the whole program. Oh, but listen, wait a minute, Pat. No, no, you, listen. You can't die. Listen. It can't do any good whether I'm there a few hours early or later. I know. She wouldn't have wanted it any other way anyhow. She was in show business herself. I know that. If it'd do her any good, I wouldn't go on this show or any show ever. But it won't. It won't do nobody any good. Oh, but Pat, now, 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 really, you don't, you don't think you'll be able to oh, go out gosh. there and... Diane. Pick, listen. Yeah. Listen, son, don't tell this to anybody after the show. All right, boy, I won't say nothing. And when the Maxwell House showboat went on that night... And now, Molasses and January! Don't go my time, Molasses, you mm-hmm. fiddle-fluted E-flat ape, you. How you getting along with that farm of yours? We we had a little explosion on my farm yesterday. An explosion? How was that? Well, I fed a chicken some layer bus feed. You fed the chicken some layer bus feed? Yeah. Well, how come the explosion? She turned out to be a rooster. <laughs> you don't you're, know. Well, no wonder. Hey, I, I hear you get up very early down on that farm of yours. Yeah, that's right. In fact, five o'clock in the morning. Uh-huh. That's a.m. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how come you get up so early? I use a parrot and an alarm clock. A parrot and an alarm clock? Yeah. Do the alarm clock wake you up? No, sir. But the alarm clock wakes the parrot up 
And boy, what that parrot say wake anybody up. Yeah, well, boy, <laughs> that's unusual, you yeah. know it. I should smother two replays. Yeah. I got another little pet out there. Yeah, what's that? A whip sniff A whip sniff bird. And again, the actor's creed, the show must go on, had been given further proof, not in a novel, not in a play, but in a really true behind-the-mic story. January was played by January himself, Pick Malone. Molasses was impersonated by Ward Wilson. Be sure to listen next week when I will talk with NBC News commentator Fred Bates, who will tell you from London how he gets the news he broadcasts and more of the human interest, the glamour, the comedy and the drama that are found behind the mic. This is Graham McNamee speaking. Good afternoon, all. Behind the Mic is written by Mort Lewis. Original music written and conducted by Ernie Watson. This is the National Broadcasting Company. Our behind-the-scenes edition of the RTC Weekly Download continues now with an episode of Behind the Scenes in Hollywood. Getting Photogenic Ice for a Sonia Henning Pitcher, 1945. By transcription, Bidwell McCormick takes you behind the scenes in Hollywood. There doesn't seem to be anything that escapes glamorizing in Hollywood. No matter what it is, sooner or later they'll get around to making it appear more attractive. Well, the latest subject to undergo the Hollywood glamour treatment is ice. Yes, ice, the kind you skate on. For a recent picture, they needed pretty photogenic ice. Oh, the kind needed for Sonia Haney's picture, It's a Pleasure, which was recently made in Technicolor? Yes, that's it. So the studio set out to glamorize the ice. Now, how on earth could ice be glamorized? Well, first the freezing base was painted a brilliant green. Then, after water had been turned in and frozen solid, the color showed through and it looked mighty pretty under the powerful lights. However, when the first skater took off, it left a white trail behind him. Multiply that trail by 40 skaters, all crisscrossing, and it is easy to imagine how quickly the ice would become de-glamorized. And then that was the cue for the technical crew to get in a bright idea, huh? Yes. They first uh, raised the temperature a little to melt the ice to a depth of about a half inch all over the rink. That accomplished the crew of workers, equipped with spray guns, loaded with vegetable dye, literally painted the ice itself. Then they froze everything solid. When they were finished, the skating surface was prettier than ever, and what's more, the skate marks didn't show on the thin layer of ice and it all photographed beautifully. Here are a few briefs about what the stars are doing. Boris Karloff will star in a picture titled Chamber of Horrors, inspired by Hogarth's famed drawing, Bedlam. Dick Powell, currently on the nation's screens as co-star of RKO Radio's Murder My Sweet, will star in Cornered. This will be his second character role since he forsook crooning parts in pictures. 
Rawhide, story of a cowboy's rehabilitation in the most colorful period of the West, will continue the combination of John Wayne as star and Edward Dimitrik as director, which currently is making Back to Bataan. Tom Conway and Audrey Long will play the leading roles in RKO Radio's The Lie Detector, romantic comedy drama. New product of international pictures will include Gary Cooper's western, Along Came Jones. Tomorrow is Forever, starring Claudette Colbert, Orson Welles and George Brent, and the Sonia Haney Technicolor film, Countess of Monte Cristo. Philip Terry, currently featured in the gay romantic comedy with music, Panamericana, looks Irish, sounds slightly English, and was born in San Francisco. Spent his boyhood in the oil fields of Oklahoma and Texas. He likes clothes, but isn't foppish about them. He majored in English literature and math at Stanford, where he was a member of the Chi Psi fraternity. He made good grades without studying too hard and became interested in acting through campus theatricals. Philip Terry is courteous and a little shy around strangers, slow to make friends, but responsive and warm once he feels he knows people. Climbing ladders bothers him because height makes him nervous. And yet, oddly enough, he's a licensed pilot and a good one. Passed his tests with unusually fine grades. He likes English and continental cooking. Doesn't care particularly for hunting or fishing. Has no yen to retire to the country or even live any place but a metropolitan area. His screen tastes run to the heavily dramatic. He's an avid football and track fan. Follows Stanford's athletic fortunes closely. He studied the classics and modern drama at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London and toured the provinces playing stock. Philip Terry landed his first film contract by a screen test at one studio who turned it down, but through an error sent it to another who signed him the following week. He calls Mrs. Terry, who is better known as Joan Crawford, twice a day from the set. But if you want to make him flare, refer to him as Mr. Crawford. And now a word from your local announcer. By transcription, Bidwell McCormick takes you behind the scenes in Hollywood. Securing the props for a motion picture production is a gigantic task and has to be started long in advance of the actual shooting schedule. There was a case, for example, of RKO's radio screen version of Pearl Buck's novel China Sky, which was assigned for propping more than a year ago. Yes, and even before that, Gene Rossi, RKO property man, was preparing notes and collecting props against the actual time when they would be needed. For instance, such items were secured as a real hand-pumping fire cart, the kind which was used during the early days of the Jap attacks on Shanghai. That cart, I understand, had to be brought to this country by a carnival which fled the Orient. Yes, and uh, the Chinese carrying poles had to be secured, the kind on which the coolies balance loads for carrying over their shoulders, and real Chinese baskets had to be secured and laid away against the time they would be needed. A bamboo dipper with cherrywood handle, a Chinese water bowl and bathtub were some of the other items supplied, and they all had to be genuine because there was bound to be someone, and often many, in the audience who would notice the difference. Hollywood's storage rooms are chock full of quaint and interesting pieces. Many of them are not used for years at a time. And now here are some news briefs from the studios. Skinny Ennis has been signed for RKO Radio's musical Radio Stars on Parade. Back to Bataan is the final title chosen for the John Wayne starring story of guerrilla warfare, hitherto called the Invisible Army. Lee Harline has completed the music for Bouquet of Lace, the feature ballet number in George White's Scandals of 1945. Joan Davis and Jack Haley will sing I Wake Up in the Morning and It's You. Voice of Japan's premier Kuniaki Koiso will be heard in RKO Radio's First Man into Tokyo. A transcription of The Voice, exhorting Japs to sacrifice everything to repulse the enemy, has been secured by producer J. Robert Bren. It will open the story. 
Definite and final plans for Danny Kaye's next picture, initiated by Samuel Goldwyn before his departure for Europe and completed since his return, were announced by the producer. Goldwyn stated that The Kid from Brooklyn, starring Danny Kaye, would go before the cameras in Hollywood within the next few weeks. Randolph Scott, big, blue-eyed, and six-foot-two, learned to ride to fox and hounds in Virginia. He's had a lot of adventures in sports, such as clinging for hours to an overturned sailing boat in shark-infested waters near the Bahamas, but he modestly says, of course, I'm not the adventurous type in private life. You're likely to overlook Randolph Scott's versatility on the screen. He's probably at his best in roles such as that of the love-muddled doctor in Pearl Buck's China Sky, a romance in which he overlooks the charms of Dr. Ruth Warwick at first, though she's right at his side in a remote China village, and he falls for Ellen Drew in far-off America. Scott's personal romantic history may have no bearing on such oversights, but to look at him, you'd guess he might be the fellow to do just that sort of thing, follow a principle, right or wrong, and admit his mistakes, if any, later. Observers of Randy's private life in Hollywood point out that outside of his working hours, he's living the life of a southern gentleman just as though he'd stayed in Virginia. He even had a plantation in San Diego County for a while, but sold it when labor couldn't be obtained to run it. He now lives on a big beach mansion which Norma Talmadge formerly, formerly owned. Scott takes an early morning swim in the ocean regardless of season or weather, finds time for a lot of golf with his friends Cary Grant and Fred Astaire. His domestic life is happy. He's now married to pretty, youthful Patricia Stillman of San Francisco. Randolph Scott is very democratic in his tastes in literature, art, and in the people he likes. His modesty has buried in the past an excellent school athletic record, and he can still startle most folks by his ability to kick and pass a football. And now a word from your local announcer. By transcription, Bidwell McCormick takes you behind the scenes in Hollywood. Colored water has always been used on the Hollywood movie sets in place of wine or hard liquors. But now a substitute seems to be needed for cigarettes. I understand that Columbia Studios resorted to corn silk recently when they had to film so many scenes in which cigarettes were smoked in the Irene Dunn Alexander Knox picture over 21. Well, that's what I've been informed. On account of the studio's fast-dwindling stock, a new system was worked out by the property department whereby cigarettes were hand-rolled, and only the outer one-third section was actually tobacco. So that's how the corn silk came to be used, hmm? Well, that's the way the story goes. Studio experts recommended that the remaining space be filled with corn silk because a survey showed that in 99% of all movie scenes, cigarettes are only smoked for a few puffs anyway. When Chester Morris and George E. Stone had to do a jitterbug number for a scene in the new Boston Blackie film, Surprise in the Night, the studio assigned Jewel McGowan, former California state jitterbug champion, to coach them and act as their swing advisor. Jewel spent a couple of hours teaching them the proper steps and the rhythmic cavorting. I think I have it clear in my mind, panted Morris at the end of the instruction, but I'm not so sure my feet understand. Convinced that there's nothing an actor worthy of a name shouldn't know, patriarch Charles Coburn, who has been a trooper for more than half a century, is putting his spare time between scenes on Columbia's Over 21 to good use. He's learning to do the samba. Shirley Temple will be the model for a national comic strip, William Henley, New York cartoonist, disclosed in Hollywood recently. Henley has been commissioned to draw the strip, which will be based on the character of Corliss Archer in Kiss and Tell for newspaper syndication. Cornell Wilde has found Douglas Fairbanks Sr. an inspiration for his last two movie roles. In order to get atmosphere for his part of Aladdin in Columbia's Technicolor fantasy of Old Baghdad, A Thousand and One Nights, Cornell purchased a 16-millimeter print of Doug's old silent film, The Thief of Baghdad. 
Recently, when Cornell was cast in the Bandit of Sherwood Forest on the same lot, he sent out an SOS for a print of Fairbanks' Robin Hood. Born in New York City, October 13, 1915, Cornell Wilde crossed the Atlantic a year later with his family when his father was called home to Budapest to join his regiment as a captain during World War I. In the revolution which subsequently ravaged Hungary, Cornell remembers a harrowing ride in a horse-drawn cart bound for a refuge in Budapest. Soon afterward, in 1920, Captain Wilde managed to obtain passports to return to his family in the United States under the immigration quota. Cornell advanced through grade school, New York Townsend Harris Hall High School to Columbia University, and thence to City College for pre-medical course, finishing the three-year curriculum in two and winning a scholarship in the College of Physicians and Surgeons at Columbia University. But his career in medicine faded as he became active in the Theodore Irvin School of the Theater. He gave up his scholarship to join a stock company at Segerty's, New York. Next came Moon over Mulberry Street. When the company went on tour, Cornell dropped out to go into a theater guild production, Love is Not So Simple, in which he played opposite Ina Clare. An engagement in Romeo and Juliet brought him to Hollywood, where he went to work for Warner Brothers, after which he went on contract to 20th Century Fox, with which company his contract is now shared by Columbia. Cornell Wilde will shortly be seen in A Thousand and One Nights and The Bandit of Sherwood Forest. And for our final program of this week's download, we have The Hedda Hopper Show, with guests Abbott and Costello from 1951. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. In a short while, Theater Guild on the Air will present the delightful Moss Hart comedy, Light Up the Sky, starring Joan Bennett, Sam Levine, and Thelma Ritter. For adventure later this evening, hear Joel McRae as he stars in Tales of the Texas Rangers. Now transcribed. From Hollywood, NBC brings you Hedda Hopper. With tonight's news brought to life by Abbott and Costello, Jane Russell, and Dorothy McGuire. From the desk by the window looking right down on Hollywood and Vine, Hedda Hopper. Hello, everybody. Arlene Dahl and Lex Barker won't be married next Tuesday. She walked out on their marriage and came home. Arrived here this morning. On Friday, she went shopping and kept him waiting an hour and a half. He was furious, said so in no uncertain terms. She said this is the end and walked out. He walked after her, returned in half an hour, and said she'll cool off. But she didn't. When Lex learned she was flying home, he rushed to LaGuardia, boarded her plane, came out raging, and left her weeping. She said, I don't believe in divorce, and it's better we found out before it's too late. George Hurst, Jr. will marry Mary Thompson from Florida on April the 23rd in Los Angeles. George is in the Army. He's been at Fort Ord seven months. Audie Murphy phoned me from Dallas, Texas, that he will be married to Pamela Archer on April the 23rd at the Highland Park Methodist Church in Dallas by the chaplain of his old regiment, the 36th. The Clark Gable marriage is on the rocks. It's just a question of time, maybe only a question of hours before they admit it. Clark's been visiting friends in Arizona. Before coming home, he'll go to Patagonia, New Mexico, to participate in the spring roundup. He rides five hours a day. Sylvia's very unhappy. In a statement to me, she said, you'll have to ask Clark about this. I'm still stuck on the guy. I happen to know that another glamour girl now in Arizona would like to rope and throw Gable if she can catch him off a horse. 
You're impulsive. You're not to be. That is the what question. What in the name of... Patsy, Patsy, what's going on out there? Miss Offer, the place is overrun by comedians. <laughs> All right, boys. What's the idea? What's on your mind? Uh, uh, you did fine, Costello. All right, that's enough. You said enough. I didn't say nothing yet. Now keep quiet. You have to say something. Okay. Now, let me do my half of the talking. Hedda, we waited until after the Oscar Awards to make a complaint. What complaint? Well, not thinking of ourselves, of course, but why is it there isn't a special Oscar for comics? Do you realize that such people as Bob Hope, Buster Keaton, Jack Benny, Harold Lloyds, and many, many others have never been honored by our industry? Bob, you're so right. Yeah. I, had, I, mean, I mean, when I say that, I'm not thinking of ourselves. You, of course, realize that. But if uh, you could promote the work of these comedians... It's uh, a wonderful idea. Sure. And yes, I'll certainly do everything I can to fight for a comedy Oscar. I don't know anyone who deserves praise more than our big comedians. They brought so much happiness to the world. Uh, Hedda, I love you. And, um... <laughs> you know, it's quite refreshing to hear a good, serious idea from you two. Oh, it's nothing new. We're, we're serious all the time, these days. What? Well, <laughs> the situation has driven us former comedians underground. We've had to change our style. Huh? Well, now we spend all our time practicing a serious drama. You know, uh, emotional s stuff, heavy stuff. Why don't you show me? Well, sure, we're not afraid. We'll show you. Costello, show her. You see, there's nothing to it, Hedda. Now, all you got to do is... <laughs> all you got to do is show something easy, something elementary, the type of uh, thing that would never win an Oscar, anyhow. Uh, Serrano uh, de uh, Bergerac. How about uh, that? You oh, mean, uh... You he mean got the name right, didn't he? What was that? You got the name right. You mean Cyrano de Bergerac? Yeah. He got it wrong. Wait a minute. You play that part. You want me to be Siriano? What this kid said? Yes, yes. Siriano de Bergerac? That's you. That should be Okay? I'm going to be Cyrano de Bergerac. Now, with this big nose on, Abbott... How do I drink my coffee and how do I find my place? Ah, never mind that. We're going to, we're going to, first we're going to do the balcony scene. The one with uh, Roxanne. So you be uh, Serrano and I'll be the handsome uh, Christian. Uh, here we go. Okay. Roxanne. <laughs> what is any man but hey, he dare ask for you? Don't ask me. I'll tell you why I do not dare ask for you. Roxanne, my darling, I am so afraid. Afraid our love will be smashed upon the rocks of Alcatraz. <laughs> our love is so strong, but I am so meek. You're meek? No, I'm Serrano. Meek Serrano, repeat after me. I must be strong. I must be strong. I must be brave. I must be brave. You must be intrepid. I must be intrepid. You don't know the meaning of the word fear. I don't even know the meaning of the word intrepid. <laughs> But back to love. Roxanne, I came here to pluck down out of the sky the evening star and then smile and slip together little flowers. Are they not sweet, those little flowers? Oh, yes. <clears throat> not sweet enough? We shall try a little saccharine. Oh, Roxanne. You are, Roxanne, you are, but... but what words these guys put in here? <laughs> you are the quint... You are the quintets? You are the quint... Tessinance of feminine nine culture, culture, food. Those are harsh words, Mr. Serrano. 
would. But I said him, didn't I? You never spoke to me like this. They never gave me words like that before. Costello, you're an imbecile. 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 Boys, boys. Please, Miss Hopper, this is strictly between us two imbeciles. Come on, I can for you, Lou. Cyrano, you're working yourself up into a frenzy. I'm not making frenzies with anybody on this show. I'm not talking about that kind of frenzy. Oh. The brain is too tense. Too tense? Yes, too tense the size of a normal brain. Oh. Now listen, I don't think it's very nice, Miss Hopper. Now, I don't mean to be rude. But be quiet! For both of you! Quiet. Now, poetry from Sereno. De Bergiac, or whatever the guy's name is. Now, let's see, it's over here. Love, I love beyond breath, beyond reason, beyond love's own power of loving. Your name is like a golden bull. Bell. 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 Your name is like a golden bell, hung in my heart. And when I think, think of you, I tremble and the bell swings and rings. Roxanne, Roxanne, inside my tummy the bells are ringing, Roxanne, Roxanne, hey, very much, Abbott and Bonzo. Excuse me, Miss Hopper. Abbott and Bonzo? Where you get this Bonzo stuff? What are you trying to make a monkey out of me? It's too late for that. Thank you. <laughs> Ava Gardner's very amused that she hasn't received a book of verse dedicated to her by that poetry-writing Spanish bullfighter. He sent one to every member of the Pandora Company, but skipped Ava. The boy in Hollywood who gets the most fan mail is not a picture star. He's Dick Contino. And incidentally, he was rejected by his draft board and reports to Jerry Ward for a picture on the 28th. Mary Martin won't come to Hollywood to make a picture with Cary Grant. When she finishes South Pacific in June, she leaves on a slow boat for England for her opening in September. And Pinzar may be in London with her. Metro hasn't taken up his option yet. Cecil B. DeMille is a very patient man. He's overlooked, but for the moment, but he won't forget Cornell Wilde. Cornell, because of his infatuation for Gene Wallace, was a week reporting back to Hollywood for more shooting on the greatest show on earth. I've said many times how tricky publicity can hurt our stars. And... And for some expert testimony, lend me your ears. Jane Russell. Exhibit A, Hedda, a little incident that happened to me in Paris last summer. Oh, that. Exactly. I got some publicity over there that kept me on a diet of bromo-quinine for days. You mean the headline in the Paris papers about you being involved in a champagne party? Mm-hmm. And there was a huge picture of me waving a bottle of champagne over my head. 
Well, to show you how cockeyed publicity can get, point one, I don't like champagne, and point two, at the same time of the alleged party, I was sound asleep in my hotel room. But Jane, where did the newspapers get the picture of you waving that bottle of champagne? <laughs> well, it was a picture taken of me two years before. I was christening a ship in New York. Well, what do you know? <laughs> Hedda, here's a smaller example of how fake labels can get pinned on you. Now, what song would you say is most closely associated with me? Buttons and bows, naturally. But why? Well, wasn't it in the picture you made with Bob Hope? But I didn't sing it. Bob did. Ah, uh, that's right. But I heard you sing it at the Academy Awards the year the song won an Oscar. That was the first time I'd sung it in my life. It was? But from then on, I'd had to sing it everywhere. Even in Hedda Hopper's column, right? <laughs> yes. Well, it is my favorite, and I don't care if you didn't sing it in the picture. And <laughs> Never mind, Hedda. I love singing it. East is east, and west is west, and the wrong one I have chose. Let's go Keep on wearing those frills and flowers and buttons and bows, rings and things and buttons and bows. Don't bury me on this prairie, take me where the seamen grow. Let's move down to some big town where they love a gal by the cut of her clothes, and I'll stand out in buttons and bows. I love you. Shirts that I've homespun, but I'd love you longer, stronger. Where your friends don't tote a gun. My bones been out, the buckboard bounce and the cactus hurts my toes. Let's vamoose, where gals keep using those silks and satins and linen that shows, and I'm all yours in buttons and bows. Give me Eastern trimming where. Buttons and bows, buttons and bows, buttons and bows, buttons and bows. Jane, and if I help tie Jane Russell and Buttons and Bows into a knot, I'm mighty happy. Mrs. Sam Goldman will be in Paris for the birth of her first grandchild in July. Her son Sammy is on Ike Eisenhower's staff with 14 men under him. Spencer Tracy promised Red Skelton he'd be in London for his Palladium opening July 1st. Spence takes off for Europe May the 5th. Is it a coincidence that Catherine Hepburn will be there at the same time? Lana Turner's present on her third anniversary, the 26th of this month, is a Jaguar car from her husband, Bob. But he bought himself one, too. I'm so sorry that the Leland Haywards lost their baby. They have a new house in Manhasset, Long Island, which they bought from the late Eddie Duchin. Howard Hughes, in his kind of women, team Jane Russell and Bob Mitchum for the very first time. It will be released in July, one of our hottest months for one of our hottest pictures. Sonia Henney and Winthrop Gardner expect their yacht built in Oslo, Norway to be delivered to them in New York within the month. 
For a number of years here in Hollywood, I've admired the work of a very fine young actress who's played mostly romantic and comedy parts. For instance, her next one at Metro is Callaway Went That Away. Well, several weeks ago, I thrilled to her beautiful performance as the tragical Ophelia in the Theatre Guild's radio production of Hamlet. So I thought the most exciting item about Dorothy McGuire would be to hear her in another tragic role. Dorothy McGuire in something special in Camille. All right, Heather. It is something special, isn't it? It's almost, it almost requires a special frame around it. An old-fashioned frame made of gilt latticework. Of sadness and gaiety and love. And perhaps the cold branches of the chestnut trees in Paris on New Year's Day, 1850. Because it's the story of Camille, the lady of the camellias, Marguerite Gautier, whose life was like champagne, but whose death lay waiting at the bottom of the glass, whose tragedy of illness was only a small drop to the tragedy of her love. Armand, my Armand, dearest beloved Armand. Madame, Marguerite? Yes, Nanny. Oh, the doctor was by. He looked in but said I shouldn't awaken you. Uh, yes, Nanny. He said from your appearance you're doing splendidly. When God said lying was a sin, he made an exception for doctors. He gave them permission to lie as many times a day as they saw patients. Oh, open those shutters, Nanny. Let in the sunshine. It's a beautiful morning. The children are rolling their hoops, and even the shop windows seem to have on their best clothes for the new year. It was not a letter, Nanine. No, it was not a letter. But next week, or the week after... Don't be like the doctor, Nanine. Here, help me with the pillows. Yes, madame. And hand me that pen and paper. Hurry. Yes, madame, here. And leave me. Nanine, please leave me. Yes, yes. Armand. My Armand. Dearest, beloved Armand. These are the words that I have so often written in my mind. You have been away from me so long. I beg of you, read these last words. For they shall be the truth which you have not known. Oh, Armand, if you could have known what happened on that day, that day before you left me forever, if you had only known what happened when a strange gentleman called on me. Mademoiselle Marguerite Gautier. Yes, it is I, monsieur. To whom have I the honor of speaking? To Monsieur Duval. Monsieur Duval? Yes, mademoiselle. To Armand's father. Armand is not at the house just now. He will return in an hour or two. It is with you I wish to have a talk. Kindly listen to me. My son, mademoiselle, is compromising and ruining himself for you. You are mistaken. I accept nothing from Armand. Your past is as well known as your beauty, mademoiselle. 
You are one of those women whose charm so beautifully yet doubtfully grease our times. Without heart, without loyalty, because your love belongs to whoever pays for it. Monsieur, I am a woman, and I am in my own house. Two reasons which should sufficiently appeal to your courtesy. The tone in which you are addressing me is not one which I should expect from Armand's father. I was warned that you were a very dangerous person. Yes, dangerous, perhaps to myself, but not to others. Oh, Monsieur Duval, it's true. I have been foolish. I have a sad past. But now that I really love, I would give the last drop of my blood to blot out that past. It's Armand who has transformed me. We both love Armand. Yes, yes. But the world has its conventions. Purified though you may be in the eyes of Armand, you are not so in the eyes of the world, which will close its doors against you without pity, but not alone against you. The first person to be hurt is Armand's younger sister, who was to have been married, but the family into which she would go has learned of the manner of Armand's life and refuses to sanction the marriage while he continues in this way. Marguerite, in the name of your love, Grant me at least the happiness of my daughter. Oh, it's very kind of you, monsieur, to speak to me so gently. Yes, I understand you. You are right. I will leave Armand for a little while. Temporary separation is not sufficient. You want me to leave Armand altogether? You must. Never. Oh, don't you understand how we love each other? Don't you know I have nothing? My life is bound to Armand's. And finally... Don't you know, I'm ill. I have only a few years. Oh, leave Armand. You might as well kill me at once. Listen to me. You have known Armand three months, and you love him. But has so young a love the right to ruin a whole future? And it is my son's whole future that you will ruin by staying with him. Are you sure of the eternity of that love? Yes, monsieur, yes. Never have I loved as I love Armand. But this liaison, their marriage, this thing, excusable perhaps to a young man, will it be so in the eyes of a mature one? What will remain of it when you grow old? How can you be sure that the first line on your forehead will not tear the veil from his eyes and that his illusions will not vanish with your youth? Everything you've said to me, I've said to myself with terror. You speak to me in the name of your son, in the name of your daughter. Well, monsieur... I ask you to tell that young girl that there was once a woman who had but one hope, one thought, one dream in this world. A dream to live in happiness with the man she loved. Then forget, my daughter. Give up Armand for the sake of his future. For the sake of his future. His honor. Oh. What must I do? Tell me I'm ready. You must tell him that you no longer love him. He will not believe it. You must go away. He will follow me. Then, mademoiselle, it is up to you. Yes, monsieur. It is up to me. And my past shall serve a purpose of virtue. Armand will never see me again. Within a day, he will learn to hate me. Within a day, he shall believe that I am again... As I was before. He will hate me there. Mm-hmm. 
Marguerite. Madame. Nanine. The pen fell out of your hand. I thought you were asleep. I can't send it, Nanine. I swore to his father. I can't reveal what's passed between us. Oh, it's only because I am selfish and afraid of death that I... But Madame... Marguerite. Camille. What? Camille, I'm here. Armand. Oh, my darling. Oh, it can't be you. Oh, it's impossible that God should be so good to me. Father wrote me everything. I already know the truth. Oh, my Armand. Had I not found you, I would have been the cause of your death. Marguerite. Tell me that you forgive us. Both of us. Oh, forgive you, my dearest. I alone was to blame. I wanted your future to be untainted. Oh, your father will not part us again, will he? Look at me. You are not returning to your same pretty Marguerite. But I'm still young. I will grow lovely again. I shall never leave you again. Marguerite, listen. My father will learn to love you as the good angel of his son. Oh. My sister now is married. The future is ours. Oh, speak to me. Speak to me. I feel my soul being reborn with your every word. Oh, do you know something? A friend of mine, Michelle, is getting married today. She's marrying Gustav this morning at the Madeleine. We'll see her. Oh, it will do us good to go into a church and to pray and to witness another's happiness. Oh... Tell me again that you love me. I love you, Marguerite. All my life belongs to you. Nanine. Nanine. Get me everything I need to go out. No, madame. Uh, the doctor Quickly, said... quickly. Here. Help me before... Oh, I... Marguerite. Oh. Marguerite, what is it? You're so white. Nothing, nothing, dear. Don't be afraid. It's just that joy does not come suddenly into a despairing heart without straining a little. Nanine, come, help me to my dressing table. Rouge to be beautiful. And my hair. And the gown I wore when I... I... Marguerite. I... I can't. Nanine, run, fetch the doctor. Yes, yes. Tell him Armand has come back. I want to live. Oh... My darling, sooner or later, man must die of that which made him live. I lived on love. Don't say such things, Marguerite. You will live, you must. A moment ago, I rebelled against death. I'm sorry. No, Marguerite, don't talk that way. Tell me that you don't believe it, that you don't wish it. Even if I did not wish it, my dearest, I would be obliged to give in since God wishes it. If my life had been different, then perhaps I might cry at the idea of leaving a world where you are to remain. But if I lived, there would always be stains upon my love. This way, all that you will keep of me will be pure and bright. Yes, my I am dying. I do not suffer. Hold me close, my darling. It seems as though life were pouring into me like sunshine. Hold me up. Hold me close so that I can feel the sunshine. I think 
I have never felt so well before. Amir, hold me. Marguerite? Marguerite? Amir. Superb. Thank you so much, Dorothy McGuire. Yes, Camille was a tragic story, and this past week was a tragic time in American history. Probably the blackest we've ever known. General Douglas MacArthur was fired in the dead of night last Wednesday. He was fired at the instigation of a man who said Alger Hiss is a fine American, and who never has retracted that statement, although Hiss now is in jail. He was fired by a man who has General Harry Vaughan as his personal military aide. His discharge was hailed with glee by the countries of Western Europe, which we have saved twice by arms, and now are saving from starvation and tyranny by your dollars and mine. General MacArthur was fired because he believed we should be against communism in Asia as well as in Europe, and said so. He was fired because he said he could see no difference in the red hordes taking China and Japan or England and France. He was fired because he could get no definite orders from this debating society, the United Nations, which is supposed to be running the Korean War, running it with more than 90% American troops. How Stalin must be laughing. Laughing at us, the United Nations, England and France, at our politicians who would have us believe they are statesmen. Yes, it was done in the black of night. It will be returned a million-fold when both days and nights will be made black. Black by the hordes of savages the leadership of one man might have thwarted had we listened to him. But instead of listening, what did we do? We fired him. <laughs> Again, bring you Hedda Hopper with Hollywood news brought to life by William Farnham, Marina Cochette, and Gregory Peck. Good night, everybody. Transcribed. This is Cancer Control Month. You can strike back at cancer by joining the 1951 Cancer Crusade of the American Cancer Society. Give generously to your local committee by mailing your contribution to Cancer, care of your local post office. Three chimes mean good times on NBC. Go behind the footlights next into the busy, glamorous backstage world of the theater as the delightful comedy about show business, Light Up the Sky, is brought to you by Theater Guild on the Air, starring Joan Bennett, Sam Levine, and Thelma Ritter. And a reminder, for quiz fun later, hear Phil Baker and the $64 question. Now, Light Up the Sky, presented by Theater Guild, next on NBC. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with more old-time radio. I hope you can join us then. Till then, this is Jim Dolan thanking you for listening.